So this morning, thank you girls, um, this morning we have the wonderful opportunity to have Keith Kateski here from Bethel uh, University coming up when? Coming up in May, May the 6th will be Bethel University. Bethel University. Would you please welcome him? Thanks. Thanks. Good to be with you all. Appreciate the ministry of these ladies here singing in the first service. As they were wrapping up, my wife leaned over and she whispered, that's a pretty tough act to follow. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, good luck. Um, but it reminded me actually of a time a number of years ago, I was preaching a series of revival services at a church in Lexington, Kentucky, near where I went to seminary. And uh, on the last night of the revival services, they had a kind of a sister relationship with a black church in town and they had brought their choir out. The black church had brought their choir out and uh, they had done all the music music that night in the service. So it was full of energy and just the music was awesome. And as they were kind of wrapping up their last song, I was getting ready to come up to preach. The pastor leaned over and he said, son, if you can't preach after that, then you need to quit. Like he's like, he's like, you are set up and ready to go. So appreciate that ministry. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke chapter 9. Appreciate the ministry as well uh, from my brothers here in Youth for Christ. I love what you're doing. And have always tried to work in partnership with uh, the Youth for Christ people where we are. National Director, actually, of Juvenile Justice Ministry for Youth for Christ. Eric Kelly is a very close friend of mine. We, we chase tornadoes together, believe it or not. So, <laughs> yeah. So we have a good time with that. But uh, it's a delight to, uh, delight to be with you guys. Good to uh, uh, share this time together. Always fun to be back and, uh, and to share from the Word with you. Kind of to help us get to thinking about this. Uh, actually, there's another uh, kind of memory from my days in Kentucky because I grew up in a little town just south of Lexington, Kentucky, where, uh, uh, where there's a university that excels in playing basketball. Uh, some of you may know that, um, but uh, I'm a big Kentucky Wildcats fan. I'm sorry. Pray for me. But, uh, but I grew up that way. I bleed blue. I raised my children that way. Uh, we, uh, during college basketball season, uh, we're all in when it comes to, uh, to watching basketball. But there's a story that's told kind of in the lore of kind of Kentucky basketball uh, territory there about a time when uh, the Kentucky Wildcats were playing the University of Louisville Cardinals. Now, you're familiar, I'm sure, with, with rivalries, school rivalries and, and that kind of thing. And that's a, that's a bitter rivalry. If you're a coach at Kentucky, uh, you don't lose that game. Like, or you're not around, you're not coached uh, very much longer. That's just, everybody shows up. Actually, I, I mean, they're sold out every game, but especially everybody, you know, season ticket holders, you don't give away the ticket for the Louisville game. That's the one everybody's at, pumped up, you know, crowds in it. And, uh, and the story is told that a family was there at the game, the University of Louisville game that year, and there was an empty seat in front of them, which just, you don't see. And, uh, and they were a little curious about that. And there was an elderly lady kind of sitting there, looked quite old. And, and uh, finally, eventually, the, uh, the family, just the curiosity got the better of them. They kind of tapped her on the shoulder kind of during a break in the game. And, and they said, ma'am, excuse me, we, we just kind of noticed there's an empty seat here. And we're kind of curious because you don't see that at any game, let alone at the Louisville game. And, and she said, oh, she said, yeah, that, that seat belonged to my late husband. He passed away. And, uh, and they were like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And there's kind of this pause in the conversation. They finally said, but um, we're still curious. Like, could you not find another family member uh, or friend maybe who would come with you to the game who wanted to see it? And she said, oh, she said, I tried. I contacted several, but they're all at my husband's funeral. <laughs> so, sometimes. <laughs> I don't recommend that, by the way. But sometimes something so has our devotion, that even things that we might normally think of as good or important, like a husband's funeral, 
get set aside for what is truly uh, that to which we are devoted. While Jesus didn't talk about college basketball, he did talk a lot about this issue of devotion, uh, complete and uh, utter surrender of our devotion in lives. And I want to just give us a few minutes today to unpack uh, what he says there in Luke chapter 9. Comes at a key point in Luke's gospel in how he tells the story of Jesus' ministry. Because in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's up north, kind of in the Galilee area. He does a lot of miracles there, some teaching. But there comes a point at the beginning of chapter 9 in Luke's gospel where Luke tells us that Jesus set his face against Jerusalem. Which is a, a, a way of saying in the Greek that he was resolved now, and that may be the way that your English translation translates that. He's resolved now to go to Jerusalem. And in the context of the gospel, that means he knows he's going there to uh, suffer and to die. <clears throat> that, uh, that that's what lies ahead. From this point on in the gospel, everything is moving uh, toward that moment. And, uh, and as Jesus goes along the road then, in, uh, it, it, kind of in what we call the road narrative, in, uh, in Luke's gospel, uh, he encounters some people. And in verses 57 to 62, Luke gives us some quick snapshots of some of these people. And I just want us to look at that together now. Verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, and we are the clay. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know what your reaction was when you first ever read those verses, but mine, honestly, was a little bit like, wow, that, that almost sounds a little harsh. You know, Jesus is, he's asking a lot. And, and some of the requests that these guys make, I mean, they're, I, I can't understand what, what is it that is behind kind of the words of Jesus here. And I'm hoping that we can kind of pull the veil back on that and, and gain a better understanding today as we look at that. But Jesus is calling people, follow me, come follow me, come follow me. And, and he runs into these three dudes along the road and, and, uh, and, and they want to follow Sort of. And I guess I kind of want to unpack that for us in the next few minutes together. But dude number one, he comes along and he's very enthusiastic. And he, he, has, he takes the initiative with Jesus and he's like, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. He is on fire. He is ready to do this thing. And Jesus understands that he really doesn't understand what he's getting himself into. He, he really is, uh, he's kind of engaged in what we might describe as underestimating the cost of what this is that Jesus, to which Jesus is calling him. Have you ever gotten yourself into something and you're kind of in the midst of it suddenly and you realize this is way bigger than what I thought. This is way more than I really understood was going on. Like you agree to be church treasurer and then you discover you're also on the great commission committee or whatever. You're like, yeah, like, whoa, I, I had that experience. I've had lots of those experiences in my time. But, uh, but there was a moment um, a few years ago when I was at Avalon, just, uh, just up the road here, when uh, I, I agreed to do 
do a funeral um, that I didn't know I was agreeing to do the funeral for. I got a call. I was on my way to Kentucky to preach at, at the reunion weekend for the college that Leanne and I had attended, and my assistant called, and she told me there was, she had gotten a call from this family, and they used to attend Avalon. They didn't at that time, but uh, essentially their adult daughter had died in a tragic uh, suicide. Uh, just terrible circumstances. Kind of the whole community knew about it because she was missing for a week before they found her. Just awful things. So your heart just breaks for these people. And she said, this family, they used to attend here. They would like to know if they could have a memorial service here in about a week and a half on Saturday. And I said, oh, yeah. Oh, please. Yeah, tell them. We'll make all the arrangements. We'd be glad to have them. You know, no problem. And she said, and they wondered if you would, let, if you would do something at the funeral. I was like, oh, yeah, it'd be, oh, certainly. You know, I mean, want to serve, especially a family. You know, in a time like that, I said, just tell her, you know, we'll connect next week. I'd be glad to help in whatever way that I can. Thinking that I was agreeing to maybe say a prayer, read a passage of scripture at the funeral or whatever. And, uh, and so the week goes by. It's like the next Thursday, this lady calls. And she said, Pastor Keith, I just wanted to check in about plans for the memorial service. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we're all set. You know, the, the chapel will be ready. Everything is, is in place. And, and I said, but I just, I wondered, what, it is it, what is it that you wanted me to do at the funeral? And she said, well, well, just kind of whatever you usually do for a funeral. And that's like when I'm, when I'm starting to catch on that, like, this is, like, I'm doing the funeral. Like, the whole funeral. Like, this, this whole deal is on me. And I don't, even, I don't even know the lady who died. And I don't know the family that well. I met them in a hospital one, one time. And, and so as the story goes on, and I won't give you all the details, though, trust me, on this story, you would love those details. But in the middle of the funeral, I find myself going, oh, my, I am in over my head because I had a coven of witches who were present. I had um, a, an order of Catholic priests and nuns dressed in canvas cassocks and bare feet and shaved heads in the back of the room. Well, the, the men had shaved heads with their hands in the air. And, uh, and I had the spouse of the deceased person who was uh, so drunk he couldn't stand on his own. So um, you find yourself in a funeral like that. I'm dead serious. Find yourself in a funeral like that. You're like, I, I had no idea what I was agreeing to do. That's this guy, right? Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And he has no idea what those words mean. Now, Jesus, I think, understands that and is challenging him because Jesus understands that where you go at this point in the gospel is Jerusalem, and where you go now involves suffering, and that where you go now involves death for Jesus and, uh, and some pretty costly suffering for his disciples as well. And so when this dude is like, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go, like he just doesn't have a clue. And Jesus says, look, you need to understand, like, I don't even have a place to lay my head. Like, this, this takes all of me. There's, we're not talking comforts. Uh, you know, this is, this is, you know, sacrifice. And, uh, and this man is underestimating the cost. I think sometimes we, we kind of underestimate the cost, especially kind of on the front end of our walk with Christ. You know, I, I love being around people when they come to Jesus' faith in Christ for the first time. I mean, these people are on fire, they're enthusiastic, they're eager, and, and, and we encourage that. Man, we try to throw gasoline on that kind of fire. And, uh, and, and we love that. But, but there is a sense, I think, where most of us would say, in that moment when we first said yes to Jesus, like we didn't really grasp what kind of level of commitment and surrender that really involved. And we learned that along the way. And Jesus calls us to discover that along the way. And, uh, and he's doing the same for uh, dude number one alongside the road. But there's two other guys 
uh, that come along, and Jesus says something to them, follow me, and, uh, and, and yet they're, they're in a different kind of category. They're, it's not so much that they underestimate the cost, um, but they're wanting uh, to kind of set some conditions on their devotion and their commitment and their following of Christ. So, so Jesus says to another guy, follow me, and the man replies, well, Lord, first let me go and bury my father, which seems like to me to be a fairly reasonable request. First, let me go and, uh, and bury my father. And certainly in Jewish culture of the time, that was huge, right? That the responsibility to, to see to the burial of parents was considered an expression or practical application of the commandment, of the one of the Ten Commandments, to honor your father and your mother. And, uh, and particularly that fell on the eldest son. If the eldest son did not do that, then, uh, then he would be ostracized for the rest of his life from the community because you didn't bring shame on your family by that. Historians have, have kind of found evidence of that. So, so the request that he's making like is fully consistent with what the culture of the time would have expected and and even seems reasonable to us like that's cool and yet jesus response is a bit puzzling um because jesus jesus is just like well you know let the bury let the dead bury their own dead and there was a part of me when i first started looking at that going what on earth was he really saying like what what is the point in that that seems harsh and the issue is not with the bury my dad part. The issue is with the word first. Now, scholars tell us that even as we read this passage, we don't even know for sure that the guy's dad has died. <laughs> like he may have several more years to go, a lot of years to go, and this is just kind of a delaying tactic. But even if we grant him right, the death. The issue is not so much that he wants to bury his father as an application of the principle of honoring his father, but but that he says first. Because that see, seeks to set conditions on kind of what I'm willing to do in obedience and surrender to the Lord. First. We see the same thing, right, in dude number three. Um, and, uh, and to him, uh, we, we, we see a similar thing. He says, another, he says, I will follow you, Lord, but first, verse 61, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Again, which seems to be a pretty reasonable request. I'm going to go back, say goodbye to my family. When Elijah called Elisha to kind of follow him and be his successor in the Old Testament, actually a passage that, this, that Jesus' words here seem to allude to, um, you know, Elijah's like, yeah, sure, dude, you know, go, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get on with this tomorrow. And, and this man says, but first let me go, let me go say goodbye to my family. And and Jesus is like, dude, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And the issue, again, is not saying goodbye to my family. The issue are those two words, but first. Oh, Lord, yes, but first. We have other words that we use sometimes with God to set conditions on things, as long as, <laughs> right? Oh, Lord, I will, oh, yes, you have my total obedience as long as I don't have to right? But first, Lord, let me, let me just, let me get past this, and then, and then I'm there. I wonder how many times as we seek to follow Christ in, uh, in our lives, we reach points where God is calling us to let go of more, right? We've discovered, like dude number one, that there's much more to this that we've got yet to let go of, and, and Christ says to us, let, you know, give it all, right? Everything. And we say, well, Lord, but first, Lord is, yes, as long, as long as, right, we seek to set conditions on that. 
I mean, picture it, picture it like kids, like little kids, you know, imagine, I, I kind of imagine this in my mind as dad, you know, my kids are grown up now because I'm old, but, but when my kids were little, you know, like, okay, son, now don't do that. And like, okay, dad, as long as, like, like I would not tolerate that idea of you can set conditions, you can kind of negotiate the terms of this, right? This is all in. And, uh, and, and yet these guys are trying to do exactly that. First, first, as long as. As long as I can still, whatever. Are there any things in your life where you've been saying the same to the Lord? Yeah, Christ, <laughs> I'm yours. As long as, as long as I don't have to give up that. As long as I don't have to set that aside. As long as I don't have to do that, right? Um, that's setting conditions. And that doesn't work <laughs> in the kingdom of God. Let me make three quick observations as we kind of begin to wind this thing down uh, with regard to those issues of surrender and surrender without kind of underestimating the cost or setting conditions on kind of our yielding, yieldedness to the Lord. The first one would simply be this, that act of surrender of the will is actually the flip of the very found, fundamental nature of sin itself, right? That, that at the heart of sin is this idea that I'm going to exalt my will over that of God. Or if we take the words of Jesus in surrender and flip them, not your will, but my will be done. That's, that's right at the heart of sin. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3 and the eating of the fruit from the tree, well, we can eat from any tree, any tree in the garden, but that one, God says we can't eat from that one, but not your will, God, but mine be done. We're going we're gonna to try that fruit. At the heart of sin... The heart of rebellion in the human heart is this idea of exalting my will over that of God. And, uh, and so surrender then, right, is the reversal of that, enabled by God's grace, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that says, Lord, now, not my will, but yours be done, right? The power of this act of yielding the human will is, uh, is by the grace of God and through faith in, uh, in Christ's work to, to flip the very fundamental nature of the influence of sin in our lives. Secondly, that surrender becomes possible because what we know of God's nature. And by this, I'm talking about God's capability here. Right? That, that if we know that God is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, He is holy, He is almighty, He is all-loving, he, he is all of these things that we know of, uh, uh, of who He is, then I know that if I surrender my life into His hands, He's fully capable of doing with it what needs to be done. Right? I'm not surrendering my hands into someone who doesn't have the capacity to, uh, to address what needs to happen in my life. I can know that God is capable of dealing with whatever issues are going to come along. If we take seriously what the scripture has to say about both God and the human condition, he's actually more capable of doing that in my life than I am. But thirdly, surrender is also possible because of God's love for us. And this gets at the issue of God's trustworthiness, right? Because it's not just that I'm surrendering my life into the hands of someone who has the capability, the power, the, uh, the sovereignty to accomplish some of these things, but he also has my best interest at heart. He loves me with a, with a, a love, actually, that is beyond my comprehension. And he wants what is the very best for me, what is in my best and good interest. He is... He is profoundly benevolent in that sense. It's a word I would use in my Bethel class, right? 
a benevolent God. He wants what's best for me. So I can trust him to do what is in my best interest. Have you ever had one of those situations where you're being asked to yield control in a setting to someone that you're not sure has your best interest at heart? We can't do that, right? But we know, given the testimony of Scripture, that God has ours at heart. Jesus gives us the classic illustration of this level of surrender. Because we catch up with Jesus later on in the garden. He's made it to Jerusalem now. And uh, the gospel writers give us this profoundly intimate picture of these kind of final moments Jesus spends with his disciples and the upper room, and he gives them some valuable teaching. He washes their feet, and they all go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, they're going to have a time of prayer, prayer meeting. And Jesus leaves some of them there. He takes Peter, James, and John on a bit farther, and then he goes on. And we get this picture of his prayer in these hours just before his arrest. And they're agonizing moments because he understands the, the full nature of what, what he's about to experience in all of this. And, uh, and, and there's kind of a part of, of him in his, kind of in the human, human nature of Jesus in this moment. That just says, that's not going to be fun. That's not going to be easy. That's going to be incredible suffering. And yet, and so in this moment of prayer, there's just that honesty, Lord, if it be possible that that cup be passed from me. But then he comes back around with this prayer of surrender that ignores, right, the, uh, um, the setting of conditions and just says, but, but not my will. Not my will, but yours be done. That is that prayer of absolute <laughs> surrender. No underestimating the cost. Jesus knows that. It's clear. No setting of conditions. Well, Lord, this whole cross thing, it's great. Um, but first, let's um, take care of, or Lord, that'd be fine as long as it's just simply, not my will, but yours be done. Could you say that to God this morning about every facet of your life? Is there, any, is there any part of that heart of yours that is off limits to what God would want to do? Is there any aspect of your life that is not freed up for God to direct as he wants to do? I love the fact that even though often we underestimate what this following of Christ thing really is about, there are those decisive moments along the way when the Holy Spirit just gets a hold of our heart and says, let go, surrender. And for some of us this morning may be that kind of moment. I've had so many of those along the way in my life. One of those actually was tied to my own calling to ministry because I thought I was headed uh, in, a, in a very different direction. To I was studying at the University of Iowa in my master's program. I was going to teach communication uh, at a, a college or a university sometime uh, in the future. And I was reading a book by a missionary by the name of Bruce Olson, who was called of God to take the gospel message to a tribe of native peoples in the country of Colombia in South America. It was, um, it was not the kind of calling that most of us would desire for ourselves or for our sons or daughters. Uh, it was a tribe of people that no one had ever made contact with and lived to, uh, to tell about it. Several had tried, but just hadn't lived to tell about it. So it wasn't kind of that thing that you were inspired to do. Um, but it was God's call for him, in spite of the danger and the potential cost. And in one of the chapters of that book, he tells kind of a bit of the story about kind of coming to, uh, coming to grips with that calling of God and whether he was willing to, to surrender, yield control of his life on that point. And, uh, and essentially God challenged him to, 
you know, will you do whatever I want you to do? Go wherever I want you to go whenever I ask you to do it. And it was like God used those phrases out of that chapter of his life to challenge me. To say, Keith, would you be willing to say the same thing to me? Are you willing to go anywhere that I would send you? Are you willing to do whatever I would ask you to do whenever I ask you to do it? That wasn't an easy thing to say yes to right away. There were some wrestling moments over that. What if I, what if I have to let go of the direction that my life is headed? What if I have to, am I willing to do that? Or would I be one of those, but first, Lord, let me, let me do this for a while, right? Or, oh, Lord, that'd be fine as long as I don't have to. But no, God, are you willing to go anywhere, do anything that I tell you to do, whenever I tell you to do it. And there came a point in my life when I said, yes. And God said, that's, that's vocational ministry. And I finished kind of the degree I was working on and redirected my life, went to work for the Salvation Army for a time and then on to seminary because I had absolutely no educational preparation for what I was seeking to do in ministry. And for the, last 20, for the next 21 years then after seminary, I served in local churches as a pastor. Interestingly, I'm at a college now teaching, <laughs> and I teach a class in communications for, for our college because of that background. But it really comes down to that point of, are you willing to go anywhere, do anything, anytime I tell you to do it? Now, for all of us, for all of us, that's not vocational ministry. But there are, but for all of us, it is this surrender of my life and my heart. And so my my question for you today is simply, are there any aspects of your life or heart that you're still holding on to? That you've been unwilling to let go of and say, Lord, yeah, it's yours. Anywhere, anything, anytime. Or are there still a few of those but firsts lurking somewhere in a corner of that heart? Or those, as long as, Lord, as long as I don't have to go to Africa, that's always the one I heard from people in my church, right? I thought, I want to have to go to Africa, like, as if that were bad. I've been to Africa, one part, and it was exciting. Any but firsts? Any as long as? Jesus said, <laughs> there's no space for that. It's all in. Anywhere, anything, anytime. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this challenge, it makes us squirm. Because for many of us, we would, love to, uh, we would love to retain that level of control. And yet, God, in the call of Jesus, we don't hear any space. There's no wiggle room for the but firsts and the as long as's and whatever other phrases we would use to try to keep our our fingers on any aspect of our heart or life. Some of us even here today, Lord, are hearing your spirit say to us, that's you, my friend. If that's the case, then may today be one of those decisive crisis moments when we release our control, when we yield our heart, when when we surrender our lives to you, when we are truly yours. Help us in that. 
Give us the courage that we need, the grace that we need by faith to trust you. And in doing so, God, may, may our lives, may this church be turned upside down in powerful and great ways in service to you because we're yours and not our own. For we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.